0: Second reading this morning is from John chapter 19, uh, verses 28 to 37, and I'm reading from the NIV. And on the pew Bible, it could be on page 1135. It'll be somewhere near it if it's not that. The passage is titled "The Death of Jesus." Later, knowing that everything had now been finished. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other." But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. And he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord.
1: once again thank you very much for your warm welcome here today it's always a great delight for me to uh, come to surrey hills uh, when the college used to own a number of properties down there in kent road uh, this church was a very familiar place to me i used to walk past it most days so I uh, always have a fond affection for you and for the congregation here as we draw near to god um, let's just pray Father, we know that you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And we pray that as we come to read the scriptures today, uh, your spirit would shine upon this open page and give us a revelation of Jesus, uh, not simply a mere man nor just a miracle worker but the one who can actually take away our sin. We pray, our God, that you give us a spirit too of humility and repentance, that we would turn to him and rely upon him in a way that uh, sees us safe to eternal life. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Would you please turn with me to John chapter 1. This morning, uh, I want to ask and attempt to answer a very important question, and it's the question, what can take away my sin? For large numbers of people today in our culture, it's a question which is largely irrelevant. Sin, they say, what's that? What's sin? It's so out of date and irrelevant. I mean, if we're talking about wrongdoing... Let's get real. Let's talk about crime. Let's talk, for example, uh, about felonies or misdemeanour or corruption or offences. But why talk about sin? Sin is so passé, it is so out of date and out of touch with modern reality. Or is it? not apparently to Dr. Carl Menninger, uh, a former president of the uh, American Psychiatric Association. He wrote a very famous book called Whatever Became of Sin? It's now a little bit dated, but he lamented the passing of sin from modern American culture. He said that as a practising psychiatrist... We need the category of sin to be able to accurately understand the human personality. And if we omit the mention of sin, we impoverish our understanding of human nature. Without sin, he said, so much of human behaviour is poorly understood and poorly defined. Now, essentially what he meant was this. When we remove sin from the picture, we're actually removing God from life. Because when you think about it, sin has a Godward aspect. That's why people who don't believe in God don't like using the word sin. It gets God in through the back door. That's why they prefer to talk about things like crime but if god is the most important and relevant person in existence it makes very good sense to talk about sin and removing god from the picture you know as it were rebalances all of life in such a way that we become imbalanced would you say peter why is it such a relevant issue. It's a relevant issue because sin reminds us that the most critical factor in our existence is the fact that we have transgressed the will of God. It means that we've committed an offence against God. Uh, We've broken the law of God. In other words, our primary problem is not so much our problems with others, although they're vitally important, Our most fundamental problem is our problem with God. And people today don't want to recognise it. They prefer to categorise human misbehaviour under a range of different categories which removes God entirely from the picture. So they define offences as crimes or felonies or misdemeanours or some act of malfeasance. See, it's, it's possible to declare something to be a crime when it's not actually a sin. You know, the Victorian government had a go at the, the other day. It's now a crime for an elderly man who's doing nothing, he's just simply got his head bowed, sitting on a seat and praying within a certain distance from an abortion clinic. So really? Well, they've got the same law in the ACT and three men in their 80s, could you believe it, who didn't even look at the women and who were sitting a significant distance away were regarded as committing a crime. But did they commit a sin? You see, it's this idea of sin as an offence against God that takes us to the heart of understanding the human condition. Now that I've explained why the idea of sin is so important, let me mention another associated word. It's the idea of judgment. And this is the idea that really has Peter Fitzsimons, the man with the red bandana, and the uh, journalist who's also the president of the Australian Republican Association, and Peter Van consulting editor at The Australian, in such a lather. They don't like it. They've condemned Israel Folau for using the idea. But judgment or condemnation is an important idea because it reminds us of God's response towards sin. It's another word that we're not supposed to use in a politically correct culture. See, the, the media thinks you're as mad as a cut snake if you talk about a judgment, a divine judgment. You remember what they said about Tom Cruise when they discovered that he'd lavished $11 million on an underground bunker in some place in, you know, mountainous Colorado? They thought he was a fool. Why? Because he believed that a divine judgment was coming from beyond this world uh, with aliens, as it were, to punish us for our sin. And Tom was branded as being mad. Well, he may have been mad about the alien forces... But the whole idea of judgment is very biblical. In fact, it's also very historical. In cultures all around the world, we know that there was a universal flood, that God wiped out, as it were, the whole human race and permitted just a small number of survivors who lived in an ark. That's not just a Jewish story, incidentally. It's been traced to over 50 different cultures around the world, all of whom independently recorded. And another thing that's recorded for us is the exodus from Egypt. Again, an historical event. And we know they just weren't ordinary events. They were special events because they were actually events of divine intervention, of divine judgement. And the people of the time were warned well in advance of them happening. Which is why the Bible points to these two events as divine foreshadowings of a far greater judgment that is to come. And it will come because of sin. And it's that one aspect of divine judgment as a result of sin that we need to reflect on because it takes us to the heart of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to think for just a moment about what happened when Israel left Egypt. You remember that God promised Pharaoh, or warned Pharaoh, that if he ignored him, he would visit a number of judgments upon the, Israelite, or upon the Egyptian people. But one of the judgments, in fact, the 10th judgment, the final judgment, took place on the night of what is known as the Passover. And it was a very significant judgment. It came in the form of a plague. And it was significant for this reason, that the Israelites were told that although the other nine judgments would not affect them, this one would because it was a judgment for sin. In other words, the Israelites were reminded that they, like the Egyptians, were also under God's judgment for sin. And unless they took precautionary action by by painting the blood of a sacrificed lamb over the doorplaces of their houses, they too would die when the angel of death passed over. You see, all the previous plagues had left them unscathed. But not this one. This one could kill even the Israelites. And God gave this plague because he wanted us to realise that even God's people are no more righteous than those who are his enemies. And we too face the penalty of sin. I wonder if you realise that. You know, it may be that you've grown up in in a family which is, you know, very close knit, and you know you are righteous in the sense that you don't do things that other people do, and you try to live by the good book, and uh, you obey all the laws of the land. You know, it's easy to think that the problem of sin is at arm's length, friends. It's not. Remember what Isaiah says, all we like sheep, all we like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to his or her own way. Remember what David said in the Psalms, in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, as I came into the world, I had this blemish upon me. And so this very first Passover act proved... This fact by reminding the Israelites that they too would die like the Egyptians unless they took hold of a very special provision which would enable them to survive the judgment when the angel of death went over their houses. And the way to survive was by painting the blood of a slaughtered lamb over the lintels of their homes. so this 10th plague was in fact a sign of God's judgment on all sin, on Egypt's sin and on Israel's sin. And it was a reminder that every person who'd sinned was under judgment unless, of course, they took this precautionary measure and placed themselves within the shelter of a house that had been covered by blood, Passover blood. You know, this idea isn't quite as strange as it sounds because we're introduced to it first in the Bible in one of the first stories of the first family. You might remember in Genesis chapter 4 that Cain and Abel come before the Lord uh, to worship him and honour him and Cain, thinking that he could devise his own means of approach, bought the first fruits of the soil. And Abel... For some reason, we're told it was by faith that he brought it, perhaps because God had revealed to him, as well as to Cain, that he really required a lamb. Uh, He brought a lamb, a fatling of the lambs. And it was Abel whose sacrifice was received. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and on his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour the writer of Genesis tells us. Abel had the one with a lamb and what God had given, he received. In salvation, God gives what God demands. So again and again throughout the history of redemption, God provides lambs as a means of sacrifice for sin. Just think of Abraham going up the mountain of Moriah with his son, Isaac, in tow. As they walked up the mountain, Isaac, who was obviously no fool, uh, realised that they did not have a sacrifice. Father, he said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb? Abraham was doing it because he'd been instructed by God to sacrifice his son as a test. You see, Abraham knew what God required and Abraham knew it too. And his faithful answer explained the plan of salvation because God gave a lamb just at that moment. And Israel never forgot it. Not only did they practise uh this sacrifice of the lamb on the day of passover where for each family a lamb was slaughtered but they also did it on Yom Kippur the day of atonement the great high point in the Jewish religious calendar where the high priest went into the holy place and there placed the blood of the lamb on an altar now isn't it interesting the progression here with the lamb serving as a representative for larger and larger groups. The sacrificed lamb satisfies for Abel. Then for Abraham and his son. Then for a household within Israel. Then as Aaron the priest goes into the most holy place for the whole nation of Israel, and then foreshadowed in the prophet Isaiah in the 53rd chapter, we read of a man, this time not a lamb, but a man who's described as a man of sorrows, who is pierced for our transgressions, who is crushed for our iniquities, who pours out his life unto death and bears the sin of many. Here we have, as it were, the picture of the Messiah, the one who fulfills all these typical prophecies of the Lamb of God. And he's not just going to save Israelites, he's going to save people from all nations through his atoning death. That's why when John the Baptist comes and he sees Jesus at his baptism, he points the crowd away from himself, he's not a celebrity preacher, He's not there to preach about himself. He points them away to Christ and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's extraordinary. This is the man who fulfills all of Israel's hopes. This is the man who can deal decisively and finally with your sin. You see how God had been planning out this whole scheme of redemption from the very beginning of the world? It was in the mind of God to provide a lamb in the form of Jesus Christ who would bear the sins of people from every nation under heaven. And it was through Christ that salvation would come. And that's the message of the Bible, friends. If you want to meet God, you have to come with the sacrifice that he has appointed. Every other lamb was simply preparatory for this great sacrifice that reminds us that that is so. Now people right across the world have had glimmers of that in their own cultures. We know that not only in Western cultures, but in Eastern cultures, Chinese cultures, there is some reference to this. And it's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Now, this understanding that Christ is the Passover lamb who takes away our sin is not something that we arrive at, you know, by our own reflections or by some process of logic, John tells us that it comes as a way of revelation. In other ways, in other words, there was a time when the identity and uh, the significance of Jesus Christ was unknown to John himself. Uh, you'll notice what he says in verses 31 and 33 of John chapter 1. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptising with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And then he says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptise with water said to me, he on whom the Spirit, you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And then he said in very significant language, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See what John's saying here? There was a time when all I knew Jesus When I knew Jesus, rather, he was just my cousin and he was a carpenter. And as we had periodic, you know, gatherings, family gatherings, uh, I learnt that he was a very wise man. And I heard he had a reputation as a teacher. But I didn't know him as the Christ or the Son of God or as the saviour of the world. And the reason I didn't know him is that because it's a revelation. It's not something that I can necessarily deduce or arrive at through human reasoning. It comes as a gift of the spirit. As Paul says, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand the things that he has given us. So let me ask you this, has God revealed to you the most important thing in your life and that is Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and the sin of all those who trust in him. You see, you have to believe that, you have to rely upon that. To be saved and sadly our modern world is oblivious to the unchanging message of the bible and that message is our sin must be removed and god has provided the means for its removal in christ the tragedy of modern culture is that we try to look for it everywhere i was watching abc 24 last night and they interviewed a man who's just written a book on depression he's 39 years old He said he's over all the drugs, he's been taking them for so long. And he said, you know, the thing that I've realised is, although the drugs help in some way, they can't deal with the problem that I really have. And that is this just overwhelming sense of anxiety and depression that comes upon me, largely because I think he doesn't know why he's here. He said, this is a civilizational problem. And it's a civilizational problem because we've banished God from our world and we can't explain ourselves or why we're here or why we're significant and important in and of ourselves. And we go looking for relief in every other direction. We go to Eastern religion. We go to transcendental meditation. We go to spinning wheels for prayer. We go on pilgrimages. We go to holy sites. We collect religious icons and symbols. We go off to, you know, every other sort of seminar that we can go to to find human health and wholeness. And the Bible's saying, you've missed the picture. This is where you find peace for your soul. This is where you find the remedy for your problem. It's in the Lamb of God who takes away your sin, who deals with your sin." who reconciles you to God and enables you to be reconciled to God and to others. Now, there are unfortunately some folk who just can't get this idea into their head. They complain about this notion that God can actually take away their sin. Why can't I work it off myself? Well, the good news of the gospel, folks, is this. That God has devised a way that you and I would never have devised. He's done it in a way that protects his glory. It honours his law. It respects us as human beings. And it pays the penalty that we in ourselves could never pay. It's a perfect sacrifice because his son offered it. It's an infinite sacrifice because only Christ was sufficient to offer that sacrifice against an infinite and holy God. And whether we can understand it or not doesn't really matter. The Bible says it's a revelation. And that revelation is our great comfort and assurance today. My prayer for myself, my prayer for you, is that you'll have this truth embedded in your hearts that will provide constant comfort and consolation not only to you but to your family, to your friends, to your congregation and, importantly, to those who don't know it and who are headed to destruction. My prayer is that uh, this truth will empower you in the same way, same way that it empowered John Harper on the last night of his life, 106 years ago. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you again for uh, your word. We thank you for its preciousness. And we thank you especially uh, for the consolation that it brings, that you have taken away this wretchedness that lies within us, this willfulness, this rebellion, sense of self autonomy that we can't throw off and we can't break out of in our own strength and we thank you that you have taken it as far as the east is from the west so far have you put it away from us and we bless you and thank you in jesus name amen